myself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past I'm dwelling on the thoughts I cannot say to you If I don't say the words that maybe Hi, welcome along to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith, uh, and welcome to my guest, Paul Ferris. How are you, Paul? I'm really good, Steve. How are you? Yeah, very good, mate. Good to have you on. And first of all, I think we've got to apologise to any true crime fans who have tuned in to see <laughs> this Paul Ferris, the wee man. Uh, a lot of confusion uh, still remains on Twitter. Whenever I put a book out about Paul Ferris, of course, I wrote the uh, the, the former criminals book. Um, and it came out unbelievably at the same time as yours, Paul, didn't it? <laughs> it, came out the same time. it came out at the same time as the boy in the shade, and I saw it. And I've never, I've never met, I've never met that Paul Ferris, but I, I, and I'm not on Twitter, but I sort of was looking at stuff online about the boy in the shed, as you do, and 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 I, and I saw someone sending him a message to sort of compliment him on the boy in the shed, and in very good humour, he just came back and said, "Look, that's a different Paul Ferris, but we're both in the Newcastle area around the same time. He was at Newcastle United, I think I was in Durham Jail. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, and I do, I, I actually, I, every time I say to people, they say, "What's your name?" I say, "Paul Ferris." You can see them take a second look to think, is it? Is it? It's not him. It's definitely not him. Brilliant stuff. Okay, well, we're going to come to the boots. It's the reason I got you on. We bumped into each other on on a walk, and um, you know, you, you know, you've had a, such a, a wide range in uh, life. But from from my perspective, you know, I wanted to get you on to talk about this one, um, the magic in the tin, which we will do at the end. And uh, I've finally read my copy. Uh, I know people know that I, I struggle sometimes to get through books, but I read that in a few days. Brilliant, brilliant reading. Definitely a, a good stocking filler for anybody who uh, is, is thinking of a Christmas idea. Um, and I'll also come on to your other books later on. But let's, like I always do with me guests, Paul, let's go back to the start. And just just paint the picture. I mean, where, where were you born? You, you Northern Ireland lad, aren't you? Yeah, I was born in Lisbon. Just a bit of a, it was a city now, actually, but a town outside Belfast when I was there. And... Uh, during the troubles, really, and 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 in that time we were we were I wrote about it in the first and sorry in the, in the boy in the shed we were a, a big Catholic family as most Catholic families tended to be in a big Protestant town during the troubles, which led for some very <laughs> there were some very interesting times for us all. Some of it that, that I, I wish I'd never lived through, but but it was just the time that we all were in that. And, but we had a we had a a very strong mother who was a very very frail very frail physically, but but. Really strong morally and, and and brought us up really well. I thought and and to be honest, you, I, I I could have stayed there. I would have happily stayed at school and gone to university and stayed in Ireland. But the, the football was always going to be. I think if you're a talented footballer in Ireland, you're always going to end up across the water, as they would they would call it. And I I was the kind of mixed emotions for me. I, I kind of wanted to be a footballer, but I didn't never wanted to leave home because my mum was a bit poorly. So so I had that kind of wrench. To, uh, when I left, it was a it was a big wrench to leave. Um, and actually came here. I came here this time of the year in 1981, late, late October 1981. So I've been here a very long time. Who scouted you? Can you remember? Yeah, and it, it, it's 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 really linked to, to the Irish situation. There was a there was a. I suppose I got to Manchester United as a kid, but on Whiteside when I was really young, and and I was so traumatized by being away from home, and I begged my mum not to send me, don't don't let me go anywhere. And, and these scouts would keep coming, and I'd always keep knocking them back and knocking them back. And eventually, this scout from Linfield came. I don't know if you know much about Linfield, but Linfield at the time were like the Northern Irish Glasgow Rangers, and, and they, they had a policy of of not playing Catholic players. But this Linfield scout came to our home, 
basically because he was a big Protestant town, he thought, well, I'll sign this boy. He's bound to be a, he's bound to be a Protestant boy. So he came into our home, and there was all these holy relics everywhere. <laughs> and he said, uh, oh, sorry, you can't you can't come to Linfield, but um, my friend is a scout for Newcastle United, and you're far too talented to be, you know, wasting your time here. And I'd like you to go to Newcastle. And, and honestly, within two weeks of that conversation, I was standing on the left wing with Whitley Bay in a wet and windy night in a trial game. Um, and I'll, I'll not bore you too much, but I got the ball and, and, and I got the ball in the trial. I'm like a tricky left winger. And I'm running at this fullback and my new teammate's inside me and he's like screaming for the ball, give it to me, give it to me. So I dummied the play to him, went around the fullback and scored. And I thought that's a great way to start the trial. And I got the ball again. I'm running at the same fullback and he's terrified of me now. And the same teammate's inside shouting, give it to me. And I dummied left and went to pass it to the new teammate. And, and, and then I'm behind the fullback shouting, give it to me. And he just put his foot in the ball, folded his arms, and he said, fuck off. You don't pass to me, I don't pass to you. And he passed the ball about 30 yards that way, and that was the first time I met Paul Gascoigne. And I said, <laughs> and I said just, it was just a real eye-opener as to what professional sport was going to be. Fantastic. I mean, you came to, you came to Newcastle. Um, I mean, back in those days as well, you, you, you're talking 1981, Newcastle was in the bit of the doldrums and it, and it was Ooh. just before Kevin Keegan signed and, and you were just a, a young lad, um, you know, youngest ever debutant um, at the time, 16 years and 294 days. But give us, give us, a, give us a, an idea of what Newcastle United was like for you walking into it. Well, it was a different world. I was, I think, I think... <sighs> Rightly or wrongly, I think coming from Ireland, I'd, the boys, the boys in Newcastle seemed much more advanced than me when I first came. I felt like a real, I felt like a real country bumpkin, you know. When I first arrived, they're they're a bit more worldly wise than me, and it and it took me a little while to to find my feet. Not you know, but I, I met some of the local. Some oh my god, just in a photograph there, that's a dreadful. But but I just met some of the um some of the local lads. Kind of took me under their wing and. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I, you know I was homesick, but I quickly settled. But the football club itself was. I mean, you said the doldrums. The city was in the doldrums, but the football club itself was very much in the doldrums. We were, we were you know, mid-table, second division team, a mixture of like local ex-non-league players and some older players from different places. But you know, I remember getting, my, you know, my, my training kit. You get your, I got my training kit the first couple of times I got it, and it was like, you know, no one had washed it from the previous person wearing it, and you're kind of just putting this kit on, thinking I'll pick up the shirt that's the least, the least smelly one, and I'll wear that. And, and I, I actually went, I actually went home the first Christmas. From being at Newcastle and with ringworm from the from the from the training kit because it was just it was just rancid and there was no you know there was no there was no like no laundries there there was no kit men there there were no it was just very basic you know you're you're wearing the old seventy you know, the yellow strip you know the yellow strip with the with the green the green the, the old seventy strip and that and Bukta. Bukta, that was your training strip you know and but um you know it was just it was a it was a it, it was professional football so it seemed magical to me but when I looked at what happened when Kevin arrived. When Kevin arrived, everything just seemed to flip to be, oh, this is now this is what a football club should look like. It kind of, it kind of, I think, I think his arrival just transformed the place. Oh, it it, it certainly did. Uh, I mean, you were there, uh, 1981 to 1985. Um, you did score in the first team, though, and I mean that in itself is, you know, something that only you know Newcastle United fans could could dream of these days. And uh, tell us, tell us about that game, and, and tell us about the goal. Do you know what? I, 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 Kevin, I, Kevin had arrived as a player, and I kind of got lost a little bit. And uh, for, for I was like 16, 17, and I kind of, and, and he was kind of describing me as the best young player he'd ever seen. And I think for some people with a different personality, that might have grown, that might have grown with it. I kind of shrunk a little bit. And when he left, and Jack Charlton came in, and other players came in that I wasn't quite daunted by, I found my way back in the team again. So I got to like 19, and I was sort of understanding how to become a player. And 
Jack, we were playing Bradford City at home, St. James's, and, and Jack was about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes to go. He just, Trevor Cherry was the fullback, the legendary England fullback. And Jack, in his typical style, just said, you know, he just said, you know, he can't, he can't run anymore. So you just get on there and just, just, he won't catch you. And that, that was all he said to me. He said, you just run, run, you just run, he won't catch you. And I remember the ball, I can remember clearly, it was the typical, his style of football. The ball came back to John Anderson and he just hoofed it in the air, not because he had no talent. He hoofed it in the air because that's what Jack wanted. And then Chris Waddle flicked it on and I started running. And I suddenly realized, Christ, I'm in an unbelievable amount of space here. And I put my head down and thumped it, and and I could hear I could hear it, I could hear it hit the net, and there was the pause for a second, and then the Gallagher end went up, and I remember just not being able to breathe. I, I science really, I remember just really not being able. People were, I, the game was happening, and I was just thinking, Christ, I've just scored, I've just scored the Gallagher end for Newcastle United. And there was a lad playing at the same time called Neil McDonald, who's the same age as me, and Neil came across about five minutes after the goal and said to me, "Are you all right?" I said, "No, I, I, I just, I actually." I was just overwhelmed with the moment. It was just, and I actually, to be honest, Steve, I thought it was going to be the first of many. I didn't even pay that much attention afterwards to the press. I didn't pay attention to what, what happened with them because uh, I thought it was going to be the first of many. And now that it's the only one, one's better than none, I guess. And, and if you're going to get one, you may as well get it at the Gallagher end and you always have that memory. Yeah, amazing, amazing memory to have. Uh, I mean, there were some great characters in and around the club uh, at that time. I mean, uh, in, in in the, you know, the 82 to 84 period when Kevin was there, Arthur Cox was a, a big influence on, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin uh, coming to the club. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and obviously his departure was a shock after promotion. But um, mm-hmm. what was he like? We hear many stories about him being a bit of a sergeant major type. Was he a bit of a, a disciplinarian? Very, very much so. And I was terrified of him. I was terrified of him from the day I met him. I felt I felt like he must have been in the military. They just, they just had that, that he never was, but he had that appearance. Before I tell you anything about him at that time, I've had, as you, as you know, I've had some health issues and and, 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 and I had, I'm, I'm dealing, with, dealing with him currently. About two years ago or three years ago, Arthur Cox started, started ringing me again because he knows about the health issues. And Arthur Cox rings me on a regular basis now to ask how I'm, how I'm getting on, which I find, I think it's an incredible thing after all these years that he actually still takes that interest in, in, in kids that he knew when they were 16. But he, Arthur was Arthur was incredibly honest. You knew, you knew what you knew where you stood with him. There was no there was no no messing about with him. You just knew where he stood with him. But he, but he, I remember a game once we went to Hamburg because Kevin had come from Hamburg before he went to Southampton as the as the as the European Football of the Year. We went to Hamburg for pre-season training, and I was a sub in the game. I was always a sub, and and we we start, the game started. And it was only three minutes into the game, and he and he said, "Right, get him off, get Neil McDonald off." And, he, and so he put the he put the board up to get Neil off, who was the same age as me. And he said, "Get on there." So I went on, and I was on the pitch. I must have been on the pitch for two minutes, and, I, and the, the ball went out of play. And I saw my number to come off, and he took and he took me off after two minutes as well. And I hadn't even kicked the ball. And that he said, "I want to meet you two in my office." And he and he met us met us in the hotel, and he sat us down, and he just said, "The both of us." Too many bright lights and too many fancy hotels for you two. You need to ground yourself. You need to be better than that. You need to be. And he, and he obviously decided he was going to do. He was going to do this to us, but he could have done it maybe maybe after I touched the ball and, and given it away or something. But he but he was just kind of and, I, and you know he's just that kind of man. We, we were in the same hotel and we're looking out of the window at the top floor, just looking at the at the pool and a genuinely and he, he popped his head in between us and there was some topless sunbathers and people below us and he like looked at us both and just got our heads and banged our heads together. And he just said, you know, he said, I, I said, all that stuff will get you nowhere, boys. I've, I've tried it all before, you know, I've jumped off wardrobes, all that sort of stuff. I'd rather see a good cross and a good goal any day. It was just a real, a real old school, 
But I think he was, I think he's underrated, if I'm being honest, in terms of what he did, yeah. in terms of what he did. And you, you just have to look at how Kevin Keegan reacted to him. You know, Kevin Keegan had been all over the world and had been a successful footballer in European Football of the Year. I think Kevin Keegan probably, if you asked him, would probably have as much time for Arthur Cox as he does for, for some of the other great managers he, he, he worked with. Yeah, Newcastle, of course, uh, still without a trophy at the time of recording this uh, podcast, but um, hopefully things will change with this new ownership. But back in the 1950s, Newcastle were the Cup Kings in 51, 52 and 55. So Newcastle lift the uh, the FA Cup three times at Wembley. And two people who were in and around the club when you uh, first arrived um, were Joe Harvey, um, the yeah. inspirational skipper, um, the inspirational player, the inspirational manager, and of course, War Jackie, Jackie Milburn, uh, Jet, um, somebody yeah. who, uh, you know, I got the, well, I had the privilege of meeting both my, in my first season as a Newcastle United fan and with my autograph book in hand, got their signatures. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you must have, you must have been amazed to, to see these characters. And, and I would imagine as a youngster, being in awe of people who had such a career behind them. Well, the thing is, the, the way the modern world is, it sounds strange that I didn't know that. Before I came here and when I arrived here, I knew who Jackie Milburn was. I knew who Joe Harvey was. I knew the names. Didn't necessarily know the faces because they weren't as, they weren't as like, you know, you didn't see them as older men. They just weren't in the press. So they weren't, you know, you see someone like Alan Shearer now, he's always in match of the day. You know, he, still, he still, he looks different to what he did when he played. But, but I, 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 think, I think I wrote about it in the boy in the shed. I went in to get my salary one of the first days I was here. And I was getting the salary over outside the stadium. There's a little hut on the far side. And this this old man came in and he just said, "Oh, you're you're the really Irish boy." And I said, "I am." And he said, uh, "Yeah, I spent some time in Ireland." And I thought, "Oh, he must have been in the army or something." This guy and he, and he's and he said, "Lovely place, lovely people." And he's chatting away to me. And and, and then I left. And Tony Tower, who still works at the football club, just looked at me and said, "You have no idea who that was, do you?" I said, well, "No." He said, "That's Jackie Milburn, man." That's, I went, "No way." He said, but he didn't introduce himself as Jackie Milburn. He was just really unassuming. Just you know, just a, just a. A lovely man. I had the pleasure of meeting him a few times after that, and he would comment on how you were doing. And then Joe, Joe was in the club when I was there. Joe was Arthur's chief scout. So Joe, so, so Joe, Joe was was again another lovely man, but you could tell hard as nails. Like you could just tell he was he was. And, and I, I mean, I, the day I got injured, and I, and I and I did my knee, and and I'd be typical of Joe. This Joe came walking in, and he's looking at it, going, "Ah, oh, yeah, it's nothing. You know, your kids today, you're you're far too soft." I would I would I would I would have played with that sort of thing. My knees hanging off. And he, and he said, I would have played with that sort of thing. And then he turned and walked out of the treatment room, but he could hardly walk on his knees because they were because they were shot. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh well, that, you know that. But he was, but he was, yeah. I mean, I remember sitting on reserve team coaches, and he would come and you know, he played well in the reserves. He'd come and sit beside you in the coach and have his fish and chips with you and talk about talk about what you'd done and what you could do and what you may be. And so so yeah, I mean, very privileged, very proud to have met them both. I think and you think of the achievements of Joe Harvey. I don't even think his achievements are recognised as much as they should at the ground, personally. But yeah, amazing characters, and uh, as you say, mm. proud FA, FA Cup winners, and of course Joe Harvey, mm. uh, not only doing that, but winning the uh, you know the Fairs Cup as well uh, with with Newcastle United. Tell us about some of the players um, you know that you played with. You mentioned Gaza. Um, there he mm. is in his pride and glory. Um, at, uh, in the team photograph, there you are on the front row. There's some some amazing characters there, really. When I when I look at look at it, I mean Ando in the back row. At, um, you know we speak with uh, on a yeah. regular basis, and you've got Glenn Roder, Davy McCreary, Ian Stewart, Pedro, who you're sitting next to, John Bailey, another uh, another mm. character, uh, Bones, Kenny Wharton at the back, Big Billy mm. Whitehurst, <laughs> and Alan Davies, who's sadly no longer with us. And on the mm. far right there. 
sporting a wonderful haircut, who will come to uh, in in due course in the podcast, is Derek Wright, who uh, who would have thought he would have had such a long history at the club. But uh, I bet you that brings back some memories, mate. Any any particular players you want to pick out there? Well, you know, if you if you if you if you pick a name there, I can give you a story about most of them because I just there, there were that there were that many big characters there. When I think of when I think of when I think of David McCreary, who was a fellow fellow Irishman, and David David was David. You know, hard as nails, midfielder, loveliest lad off the pitch you'd ever meet. But actually, you want to get you want to get in the tackle with him in training because he's just going to go straight through you. And and he, and and you might remember this, David. It was one of the worst injuries before I was a physio that I'd ever seen. I was as usual sub in a first team game at St James's, and David slid in the tackle, and Peter Haddock slid in the other way, and Peter Haddock's studs caught the bottom of David's thigh and just went through his thigh, and it went through his thigh like a knife. And David's David's leg just opened. I mean, I remember looking as a kid, looking, and there's no blood. I was really that close to it. And then and there's nothing because there's no blood initially, and then this psh, this blood starts to come. And David's lying there, quiet as anything. And Arthur ran on the pitch because he knew it was bad. And as soon as Arthur got to David, David started going ah, ah, screaming, screaming. And Arthur went, David, David, compose yourself, man. And David said, Arthur, you're lying on my hair. You're on my hair. Get off my hair. <laughs> <laughs> David had no hair on the top and a big long bit at the back, and Arthur's pulling his hair back. But uh, yeah, but um, yeah, I could pick. You know, you could pick. I mean, any of well, them, any of them. Joe Allen, Joe Allen, who does the after dinner circuit, uh, in, in, is yeah. on that photograph. But he he described Billy Whitehurst as hard as goat's knees. Was he really that hard? <laughs> he was, and 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 just just and and it when he arrived, he was like again on your side and your team very good. But he was just like granite. I mean, even when he played, he was like you could. Yeah, I've seen people hit him, and and you know, I've seen people hit him on the pitch. And and he just he just wouldn't he just wouldn't move. He's like one of those guys that actually it's like a cartoon character. The person would hit him thinking they'd done the right thing, and then he would stare at them, and the person would be like, maybe I haven't, maybe I haven't done the right thing here. He just was that, you know, nothing nothing phased him, nothing mattered. I don't even think he, I think he was surprised he was a footballer. That's how I I saw him, and he was of that old school where if you happened to bump into him and John Bailey on a Tuesday or Wednesday in training, you could probably get drunk off the smell of their breath because they were kind of. That kind of lad, they just went straight from training to the club around the corner. We trained at Benwell. There was a worker men's club around the corner. And then you could, and I was a kid, yeah, I was getting the bus. And you could see their cars just turn left or turn right into the into the club straight from training. And they were just, you know, it's, it's not it's not how football should be, but it's how it was. Yeah, it was. Okay, I'll pick two more out. Um Gaza, you mentioned him earlier. Um yeah. he became um he, you know he, he became the player at Newcastle, but he, he became a legend when he went to Spurs and then obviously 1990 changed his life forever. But um you know, a lot of stories I get from the ex-pros when I'm out on the circuit are about him running mm. running right on away games with fire extinguishers or you know yeah. doing daft bets with people, you know, what you know, any any story that you can pick out. You know. First and foremost, I'm sure you know you've got a unit. You've met him yourself now. First of all, my first, uh, the first message of him there about the um, I'm not passing to you was just not who he was. He's a lovely, lovely boy as a, as a kid. Funny, just naturally funny. Couldn't help himself. Wanted wanted to please. Wanted to entertain. And I think we went we went to Bermuda. We went to Bermuda. Very uh, bizarre this day. We went to Bermuda because we got knocked out of the FA Cup, and as a punishment, we got sent to Bermuda for a week <laughs> to play Nottingham Forest, who got knocked out of the cup. So so we're in Bermuda. In this Elbow Beach Hotel, and at that time it's the poshest hotel I've ever been in, and probably the poshest hotel he's ever been in. And he's only a, he's only a kid as well, and that's the, that's just heading to Bermuda. There, that's the actually yeah. And he actually he actually um he just walked in. All these people are sunbathing, and he just walked in, and the whole team's walking in, and just he just walked in, 
climbed up the steps to the top board of the swimming pool with his traction on, just walked, or just walked off the edge of the board and just dropped in the water with his traction on. That was his, that was the first introduction all those people had to Newcastle United arriving. And then and then and then I and then I, I was walking to the restaurant in the afternoon. I know we're all working class boys and we don't have the same upbringing as some of these posh restaurants with, with some of the menus wouldn't suit us. But but he's walking out of this restaurant at lunchtime and I said, Gaza, what's the um what's the food like? And he said, uh, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch the soup like. I, I said, why is that? He said, well, there's no in it. And then I went in to have the soup, and the soup was consomme soup. <laughs> but he's just, um, yeah, I mean, I could, as you, you probably the stories you hear of him, some of them, maybe, maybe lots of them are true, some have been embellished, but he was, a, he was an incredible character. But as I said, one, I think wanted to please people and, and wanted, wanted, to be, wanted to be the clown. But actually, I can just remember the moments when I thought, this guy's is he going to is he really going to kick on? And then all of a sudden he just got stronger and he got bigger and he got and he just became so he, he just became you mentioned it, he, he just became a player at Newcastle. He just he just transformed. He did, and uh, another player at Newcastle, of course, who you uh, got to see a close hand uh, when you were at the club, uh, not just as a player but also as a physio, as I say, which we'll come to later on. But it's Peter Beardsley. Um, you know, a legend, a legend at Newcastle United, and uh, you know, ultimately, um, somebody who uh, you know is, is is still a big, uh, you know, people are still big fans of him today. Well, I, I described in the boy in the shed, Peter Beers, Peter Beers, to me was by far, I had the privilege of playing with some amazing footballers. Peter Beers was by far the best football I ever played with, hands down. Just what, just he was a, he was the most natural gifted footballer I've ever seen. He just and no no fuss about him. Just just came in, got changed, and he just had I can't even he just he just everybody knew what he was going to do, but he just couldn't stop it. He's just incredible. And 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 he and actually I think he was I think he's an I think he's an underrated footballer, Peter Beasley, even for what he did at Liverpool, I think he's an underrated footballer for what he did in England. I think he's an underrated footballer. If he was a different personality or a different profile, I think he would have been much more highly regarded. I, I sometimes say to my kids just go and take a look at the show read of Peter Beardsley's goals. You know, some the goals in that, that season when Newcastle got promoted, some of his goals in that season are you know beyond belief. The goal, the goal against Portsmouth, I'm sure you know, on the on the line when he when he when they keep people are sliding right, left, and centre, and he's just got ice in his veins. He's just, you know, you know, the, 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 there's just he's just Peter was Peter was I mean Chris Waddle was incredible when I was there. Kevin Keegan was obviously my all time well, he's my all time hero, but Peter Beardsley, I thought Peter Beardsley was the best football I ever played with. Yeah, as a physio, he came back as an older man and held his own and was one of the best players in that mid 90s team, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%, mate. 100%. My my favorite player of all time as well. Um, We touched on it at the start of the program, but you you succumbed to a medial ligament injury, um, which Mm. meant you only played 40 matches. What was that like, you know, having that dream of playing professional football at Newcastle United at the highest level. What what did that mean to you having that taken away at such a young age? Uh, well, I write about it. I wrote about it very graphically in the boy in the shed. It was it was it was devastating and actually so devastating that I actually I actually buried it for many years. I just kind of just buried it. I, I mean I, I I just found my way really properly into being a footballer, scored the goal at St James's. I was feeling like I was making my way into the team properly. Like I felt like I belonged. And I, and I attempted an overhead kick when I think of the pitch now in training. The pitch was about a foot longer than the grass than it should have been. And I caught my studs in the grass and my whole body went over it. And I, I, you mentioned Glenn Ruder before. I knew something disastrous had happened. And Glenn Ruder, I was trying to get up and Glenn Ruder said to me, calm down, just lie down. I said, if I lie down, I'm going to be vomiting my own life here. I'm going to be sick. And I was physically sick. And then the frustration for me was really 
at the time, I spent 18 months without surgery in that knee and being rehabbed and breaking down and rehabbed and breaking down and cortisol injection and breaking down. And I wasn't a particularly vocal boy, but I knew I knew that I needed help. I knew that it wasn't right. And I write about it in the book. I actually, in the end, Newcastle United lost pieces with me and just shipped me out the back door, essentially, of the career I thought I was going to have. And, uh, and I find myself standing in a in the dole office on the West Road, you know, standing in the dole queue about a week after leaving the football club. And and a guy tapped me in the shoulder and said, you Paul Bell, who plays for Newcastle. And I looked at where I was and I thought, well, no, nah, not anymore, I'm not. And honestly, I got to the front of the queue with this woman and I told, I told her my story. And I said I wasn't fit for work and I had no money. And she said, you're in the wrong place. You're not fit for work. You need to go to the welfare office. You need to go to St. James's. And I said, St. James's Park. She said, no, St. James's place behind St. James's Park. And about three weeks after being at St. James's Park as a player, I was standing in the shadow of the East Stand in this welfare office. Just And I, and I walked out with a welfare check and a bit less dignity than I had before I'd gone in. And, I, and you'd asked about the devastation of that. What happened? I was talking to my mum on the phone about it. And, I was, and she was upset and she wanted me to come home. And I, I, I wanted to go home and I didn't want to go home a failure. And, and, and I said, look, go off the phone, have a cup of tea and we'll talk in an hour. And, and I went off the phone, had a cup of tea and she went off the phone and died. And right in the middle of the conversation when I was really, really at my lowest point because I had no job, no home, I was injured. And the thing I'd feared my whole life happened just at that time. So it was like, it was like the world was giving you a, a proper kicking at that point. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I definitely didn't recover from that for a very long time. And I, I recovered from it because my then girlfriend and now my wife went and got us a council flat and got a job and got us back on our feet while I while I tried to process what had happened in my career and, and my mum. I think every man's a great woman. That's uh, certainly true in, in, in your case, Paul. Uh, but you did manage to to restart your football career at Barrow and, and that led to silverware. It did. And I, and, I, and I was I was maybe a bit unkind in the boy and shape of that period because I, I, I wasn't the player I was and I and I'd lost a bit of pace and I and I was I couldn't really twist and turn like I did. So I felt like I felt like I didn't enjoy what I should have enjoyed, which is an amazing moment. We had an amazing team, some great players at that level, and we had an incredible run and we got and we and we got to the FA trophy final at the old Wembley. And you know, we won three 0 in the game and you know, this there's about forty minutes to go in that game and I already know we won. And there's a big crowd there, and you're running about Wembley Stadium. And I wish I'd enjoyed it more because I was that, I was still that hung up on the fact that I wasn't the same player I was. I didn't quite enjoy what I should have been an amazing occasion for me. But it was a brilliant, you know, we went back to Barrow as a real football town. And we went back to Barrow the day afterwards to the City Hall for a reception. I've never seen crowds like it. It was like, it was like Newcastle won the FA Cup. It was as big as, it was just a, I've got a video of it now. It's in, when I look back on it now, it's a staggering time. So I was, yeah, that was, that was, that, but that was me playing in Barrow, going across there in a car twice a week because I needed the money. I mean, I'm kind of, because I'm, I'm, I'm studying there. I'm studying at Newcastle College and I've got no income. So I'm using this for income. And then and then, I, and then, when, when we won the FA Trophy, I had to go to university full time. So I couldn't travel to Barrow. So I ended up very short time playing at Whitley Bay just to, just to um, again, for the money until I realized that actually I, didn't, I, I wasn't enjoying it. And I stopped very young because I just wasn't the same player as I was, really. You also came back to the northeast, didn't you? Uh, Gateshead for a stint there. Well, Gateshead was first. Gateshead was when I left. When I left Newcastle, um, I went to Gateshead to train to get myself fit when I still had the injury. But I, and then, um, and then I eventually got some surgery. So I actually, I actually was at Gateshead training and I injured myself again, and I got the surgery. That the PFA paid for the surgery. I think Newcastle United might have paid for, it, but they they did it between them. And then after that, I had a little moment at North Shields for 
for a short period of time and then went to Barrow with Ray Wilkie, who was who was a very well-known non-league manager and a, and a great character in his own right. And, yeah, then came back, and, then, and then came back to Whitney Bay for, for a short time before retiring. How did the uh, the the physio career start then? Physio career was a very was a very straightforward. I you mentioned Derek Wright at the start of, at the start of the program. I was Derek's I was Derek's first first patient and his and his and his most often most often uh, visited the treatment room. So basically, I was there the day that Derek arrived. Um, we were we were away game in London. And I remember him arriving. We didn't have a proper physio, and he arrived. He arrived, and I think I, I quickly became. His regular patient and, and as the career was slipping away and I think I knew it was going and I think he knew it was going he would be talking to me on the bus uh, coming back from games saying look you're a bright lad and you know think about you know think about this is a career would you consider physiotherapy as a career and not not to work in football but to go off and work in hospital and 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 to be honest Steve I left the football club thinking I'll just walk in I walked to Newcastle College and said to the girl can I do some A levels and she said have you got new levels I said no <laughs> she said well you better do this foundation course first so I ended up on a long journey to get on that, and then I applied for the physio degree, and they made me wait a year, and I did some A levels in history and politics, which are relevant to what happened afterwards in the career with the barrister stuff, and I nearly jumped off the physio thing at that point because I kind of was really interested in the law and interested in the history and the politics, but I needed to get back. I mean, I needed, I needed the money, I needed the job, so I stayed the course and graduated, and I graduated in '93 from University of Northumbria, and and fully expected to have a career working in the health service. That was my, that was my, you know, I wasn't, there wasn't any any ambitions to go into football. There wasn't any contact with Newcastle United. In fact, if you ever speak in the Derek Ray, he tells me off all the time because we were very good friends and I just disappeared for six, for six years. Um, because I, when, you, when you've been at Newcastle United as a player and you leave, the last thing you want to be, I feel, is like a hanger-on who comes back and, and wants to try and... I, I, even though you're not, I get that. It just feels like, well, that's finished for me. That's certainly my person. That's finished for me. I have to move on. So I never contacted anyone for... I never contacted anyone from the day I left until the day I went back. Mm. But 1993, yeah. uh, you return as a physio under Kevin Keegan. Yeah. And, and, and how did that conversation come about? Did he pick the phone up to you? Or? No, it wasn't Kevin. It was the club doctor. It was Dr. Keith Beveridge, who's, who passed away recently. He was a lovely man. And um, Derek Wright. I, got a, I was actually working in the Freeman Hospital, and I was working with um, uh, stroke patients. And I was I was in a, in a ward working with a stroke patient, and I got and someone came around the corner and said, "There's a phone call for you," and I said, "Who's that from?" And said, "It's from someone called Derek Wright." And I and I nearly dropped my patient, but I kept working with my patient for a bit. And I thought, "Why is Derek Wright calling me?" And I, and, I, and I picked the phone up, and Derek said, "Paul, I'm just giving you a heads up. We are interviewing for a, 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 another physio to come because it's too much for me. Um, I know you I know you're working in the hospital. Would you be interested in coming for an interview?" So I said. Absolutely. So I went. I went to Durham and I, the County Hotel in Durham, and I had an interview with Dr. Beveridge and Derek, and they offered me less money than I was on as a um, as a physio in the hospital, and I took it because that was Newcastle United, and it was just it was too big an opportunity and too much. It was, it was just it was just when I think of all the things I read about and what I think of the boy and shit. When I walking walking back, I didn't drive at the time, and I got the train my first day to, to the to the training ground, and I'm walking. Someone said follow the towpath to Maiden Castle, and I'm walking along this towpath. And it seemed to go on for ages, and I thought it was going to be late. And there was like three blokes on a roof. So I said, excuse me, can you tell me the way to Newcastle United's training ground? And this bloke in a strong Sunday accent just said, just follow the smell of the shite, son. And I, <laughs> and I, I just assumed everybody in Durham were Newcastle fans because I was naive. Um, and then I walked in, and Kevin was there, and he just said, welcome back. I remember him clearly just said, welcome back. Nice to have you back. And it was a lovely a lovely moment because you, you, you feel like it's gone forever. 
Mm. And then you don't realize what you've walked into because what I walked into was the most incredible time, which I hope is going to be repeated very soon. But it was just like uh, football, football could always be like it was for Newcastle in the 90s. I, I would settle for that every day. I've lost count of the amount of people though who have this who either come on this podcast or who are or who I do talkings with, uh, who go uh, and they pick up the phone and they offer us less money. But I said yes. It just seems to be yeah. ingrained in Newcastle United's contract negotiations that in past in days I, gone by. Absolutely, and also you think they offered me less money, but I was on like a contract at the hospital, which was like a forty-hour contract, and and you get like your salary, and then you walk into football, and and as you know. There is no, there is no early contract. There is no, you're, it, as a physio, it's basically you're, you're there more than everybody else. You're there for longer than everybody else. And so if you worked out at the early rate, it was probably considerably less, but actually it was for that period, as happy a time as I've had in football, as well as being a player and being a physio, that period of, of 93 to, to, to Ruth Hullett's arrival was probably the best time I've ever had in football. Yeah, I mean that that period was 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 incredible, and it was the, the you know the the, the mid nineties where Newcastle were were competing against Manchester United, you know for the for the Premier League that really captured not just Newcastle fans' imagination, but but global global you know global fans because it, you know Newcastle became everybody's favourite second team apart from some fans, of course. But I mean, yeah, what was it? What was it like that season where we almost won the league from your perspective? I thought it was. I thought it was a certainty. To be honest, I actually I, being in being inside the football club, I couldn't see any way it wouldn't happen. And there was just it came, it came to that point of 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 the Man United game at home was the first time I kind of thought, oh Christ, we don't. You know, we, we Newcastle absolutely good, but you go back and they they battered Manchester United. They battered them, and um and 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 then they what they beat us one 0 But I can remember being in the treatment room with Warren Barton and. Les Ferdinand and we were just talking about different things and, and Warren was very professional and Warren was saying do you think we should have an alcohol ban from now until the end of the season and then and other players are like oh shh, what are you talking about and he's, but, it, but he kind of was he kind of was saying that we need to just we just need to get this over the line just yeah and I always think in many ways the end of it it looks like Newcastle you know they threw it away sometimes but actually Manchester United's results were incredible in the past in that in that run-in I mean, I felt like every time I looked at the TV, it was Man United 1-0 Cantona. It looked like that to me. I'm sure it only happened once or twice, but it's just like, oh, they've won a game. Oh, they've won a game. And they just they just pulled it back. And there was a, I mean, they, they draw at Forest and, they, and then they did it. But you, you can't take away. I used to go to my local pub and I talked to some of the people in the local pub and, we're, and, and you know, we, might have, we might have drawn away from home somewhere and you come to the local pub for a pint and, and somebody would be sitting in the bar and they'd say, oh, we're bloody rubbish, man. We're blah, 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 blah. Keegan needs to go. And I remember sitting there saying, Honestly, this is as good as it gets. This is this is as good as football gets. You, you, I used to watch that team, you know, sometimes training in awe. And I was a former footballer, and you'd watch you'd watch you watch their five sides, and then you need to be. I mean, it was it was just like it was like it was like like a ping pong thing. You know, the the ability in that team was incredible. The ability the ability of people like you know David Ginola in his first six months was just amazing. You know, and then you bring you bring Alan back, which you showed in the photograph there. I mean, Alan was Alan was the Alan was the missing piece, and I was there. I was there the day we, I was there the day we signed him in Manchester. We we, we travelled to Manchester to, to um. I got a call from Russell Cushing to say we're travelling to Manchester to sign a player, but I can't tell you who it is. And we got in this car with NUFC number plates and travelled to Manchester United incognito and NUFC number plates. And 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 I walked in this room, and and the guy said your player's in there, and I opened the door, and it's Alan Shearer who's just, who's just dominated the European Championships and is is the world's. You know, he's the world's most talked about player at that time. 
And even I took an intake of breath at that point. I thought, Christ, it's Alan Shearer. It's like, you know, it's like, this is, this is the final piece. And then I remember sitting with him, Steve, and you'll know him now. I, I sat and had a cup of tea with him and some biscuits. And we talked for about 10 minutes while they, while we, after we'd done the medical stuff. And I phoned my wife from the hotel and she said, well, what's he like? Is he? And I said, actually, forget, forget the football. He's actually, this guy's going to be a friend of mine. He's a decent, really decent, grounded, massive Newcastle fan. You could tell that from how he was talking. He's asking me questions about the club and what had happened in the time and talking about games he'd watched last year. And he was like a real proper fan. And he was the missing piece. But unfortunately, it didn't work out that way because Kevin was gone within six months. Yeah, I mean, you also uh, stepped up to the breach and helped them out as a manager. I mean, it was it was a brief spell, but um, mm. I mean, it's one which I know because I've spoken to Alan, I've interviewed Alan. I know that he has has regrets about that, and if he could do it again, uh, you know, in a different way, shape, or form, I think he would. But um, yeah, it was amazing to see Alan in that, in, you know, in that position. It was, and 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 for me, it was it was amazing to be standing there because I'd already I'd left football behind at that point and had gone off to be. A barrister and I was practicing as a, as a as a pupil barrister practicing criminal law, and he called me up six months in the in the you know I've, I've spent four years getting out of football going that way, selling half my house and doing mad things, spending all my money, and he said I remember the call he said um, this is before Newcastle, he called me up and said oh, I'm taking over at um, Southampton Football Club, it's gonna be my first job and I want you to run the sports meds and sports science side and I, I was in lead station and I said but I'm a barrister now, and he said I was always going to ask you and I said well can you ask me for a so half my house and nearly killed myself studying law in the 40s. And he said, look, you want to hear what these people have to say. And the reason I mentioned that is his experience of football management, I think should have been better for him. We sat in a room with some businessmen at Hampton who proved to be, you know, absolute nonsense talkers that just, you know, I thought there was a certainty. You're in Alan Shearer's house talking to businessmen who are taking over at Hampton. You think that's going to happen? It didn't happen. And then he went to Newcastle for those eight games and I went with him. And, I, you know, I've never seen him when he says he has regrets. I've never seen him work so hard. You know, he worked incredibly hard to try and turn what was a basket case of a season, what was a real basket case of a season around, and we just fell short. But actually, you know, we had that conversation with the owners and, you know, three days afterwards, and I thought the deal was done then, and and, and we never heard from them again, which is a real devastation for Alan. But it was kind of catastrophic for me because I'd run out of money and I'd run out of road. And yeah. Well, that was... Amazing, amazing for you to, you know, again to go back and, and answer mm. that call. But again, it shows you, you know, your, your love for the, the 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 football club, which which stands out. You've um, you mentioned um, you know, the, the legal side of things. I mean, you know, how did that journey start? I don't sound I don't sound this because of the way I'm talking on here, but I was always my whole life been a really painfully shy boy. I don't know, I like I used to call it shyness, maybe introversion. So if we were in a room and there was 40, 50 people in that room. I, I, I'd be in that room. You wouldn't. I, yeah, I'd be out the room. You wouldn't know I was there. I just couldn't bring myself to put myself forward. But I always felt like I had a voice, and I felt like I wanted to be to better myself. And I always felt like there was something inside me wanting to do that. And when I did the the, the history A level and the politics A level, I thought about jumping then before I did my physio degree and, and doing a law degree. And really, the barrister stuff was actually kind of challenged myself and kind of forced myself to the front of a room and make myself find my voice and make myself, it was, as, it was as basic as that. I wanted to terrify the life out of myself to see how far I could go and to see if if, if I was, as, you know, I felt like I was capable, but I never really had the confidence. So it was that, it was like, what career can I choose? That's, that would be a real challenge. And I, I can tell you, I didn't get the chance to do it for very long, but a career where you have to stand up in front of a judge who's probably got, you know, brains the size of Britain and you've got to try and argue with them and argue your point. I think that's a pretty challenging career to choose. 
What was it? What was it like uh, to be called to the bar after you know going through that kind of study? Because from your perspective, it's um, you know it, it's years of your life that you've dedicated to getting yeah. get, you know getting this qualification. But then to be called to the bar must have been a must have been an extremely proud moment for you. Do you know what, Steve? It was it, it, I even now look back. It was as, it was as proud a moment as I've ever had in, in, my, in my, my entire life. It was in Middle Temple in London. And that photograph that you put up there is is the first time that you're 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 wigged and gowned, and and it's the first time your family see you, and and you and you know you get called, you get called, you literally get called to the bar. You can make the bottom of a room in, in the middle temple, and you know there's a huge crowd beside, and and you walk across in solemn silence to get called to the bar. And it feels like a moment, and it's felt like a moment, and and I, and, I, and I at the time, you know, you mentioned Alan, I'm sending Alan pictures of me in a wig and gown. I'm sending. <laughs> Sending people pictures to me to say, look at this. This is because it's like it's like what happened there. I've, I've, I've done that. That's and actually, you know, I can still I can still refer to myself as a barrister, but I can't be a barrister of law. I can have that forever. So it's a very expensive wig and gown I have at home now that I never use. It's there for anybody who wants it for fancy dress parties. But it's um, but it was an enormous moment because my wife was there. Who knows the struggles I've been on? My, my eldest son was there. I was you know it's 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 from an Irish an Irish working class boy, no qualifications, leaving school to be a barrister. I think that was. If I look back, I think, Jesus, that's pretty. I'm, I'm, yeah, I can. I'll, I'll cope with that. Fantastic. You, you came to to recognition in the public eye again with with the book, uh, the boy on the shed. But that wasn't your first book. Um, you had uh, gone into the literary circles before, but hadn't made as much of a bang with an Irish heartbeat. So, mm. where does the where does the love for writing come from? And tell us a little bit about that first book. Well, the first the first book came out of desperation because it was when Alan it was it was when Alan when Alan had finished um, and the Newcastle United thing hadn't happened and I was I was basically sitting at home as a barrister not practicing law and a physiotherapist not practicing physiotherapy waiting for Alan to go here there and everywhere so I'm waiting for Alan I'm waiting for the call from Alan to say we're off we're going to get a job while watching my bank account just dwindle into nothing and so I'm in a I'm in a bit of a panic and I actually I actually had this story the Irish heartbeat story floating around my head for a long time. I don't know where it came from even. And I just thought, well, I'll just start putting, I'll put this this down in writing and see how I feel because I'm, I'm feeling not great about life at the minute. And I started writing and I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop myself. And I just thought I'm just going to get this out on the page. And then and then I I sent it off to five agents. Um, I'm still waiting for a reply from all of them. Never got a reply from any of them. Uh, and I published it. I published, I self-published it and just forgot all about it. And just, and then, I, and then, and then life moved on. I got my new job and, at Speedflex and life moved on. I forgot about it, but actually, I'm glad. I'm glad I wrote it. When I look back now, anybody, anybody who reads it, I think it needs a good editor, um, who would have, who would have told me that you know the, the C word is, is, is best used sparingly. But in my head, there was a psychopathic Irishman going to kill people. So basically, he's calling everybody that so yeah. every two seconds of the book. Um, and and I just uh, you know I, I look back now, I could have written it better, and I think it could have been a better story. And the funny thing about Ireland is the story actually almost now is 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 now sort of surpassed by events in Ireland that you, you couldn't the, the, the circumstances don't exist for what for how that story was written um because life's moved on so fast and the politics has moved on so fast I'll stick the link for that book into yeah. the uh, into the description box below so you can get that as a Kindle book on uh, Amazon um get yourself uh, a copy of that to start with you need to read these books in order people <laughs> okay uh, your health though took a turn for the worse Paul um when you yeah. suffered a heart attack yeah, and that was the motivation for the boy in the shed. So I, I was, 
I was in the middle of a busy life trying to build a health and fitness company with, I think you know, Graham, do you know Graham Wiley? As, as, yeah, 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 no, Graham. And Alan's a director and we have, we're forming a company, Speedflex, moving off in directions and I'm, I'm taking these in different directions, some of them good, some of them very bad. But you, but there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress there. And I was actually, I was actually dr driving Robert Lee to Close House on the day of Steve Harper's testimonial because they were meeting at Close House. Um, they were going to play golf, I think, in the afternoon. And we were having a talk. Rob was working at Speedflex. We were having a talk, and I could feel my chest just, just tighten. And I, and I said, "You go and have a cup of tea, Rob, and I'll, and I'll, I'll just settle down here for a bit." It was a bit stupid. And then I just felt myself. I just like it was like something was just pinning me to the chair, and I thought, "This is." I knew what was happening. I knew I was in trouble. And I rang Robin. There's no signal. And I couldn't get him on the signal. And, and and eventually I got him. And I said, look, you need to come back. And he, and he got in the car and said, what do you want to do? And I was, because I wasn't thinking clearly, I said, drive me to the hospital, which is mad. And we started driving out of Close House. And we got as far as Hedden. And I said, Rob, I'm not going to get there. That's, I'm not, you need to call me. You need to call 999. And we, we called 999. And they met us at Throckley at the roundabout. And then the next thing I remember, I was having a, having an emergency stint because I had a I had a 99% blockage in my main coronary artery, the one that would often be referred to as the widowmaker heart attack was was would, and I was in trouble. And I was lying in the Freeman Hospital about two o'clock in the morning with three old fellas for a cup for company, and I was feeling a bit sorry for myself. And honestly, my mind just kept taking me back to my childhood in Ireland. And I was five years old when my mum had her first heart attack, and she slept beside me, and I didn't know. And she had. She just disappeared and came back. And in those days, they just let they just let the heart attack take its course. And she was just much less than she was when she came back. And that, you know, that was her in a journey of that was her first heart attack. She had her second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth and seventh heart attacks, including two cardiac arrests before I was 12. And I was just lying there and this and I thought, I want my kids to know who we are. I want my kids to know who their mom is. I want my kids to know what their mom did for me when, when I was in trouble for the first time at the football club. And I want them to know who my mom was. I want them to know where they come from. And that was the motivation for the boy in the shed. And the boy in the shed title, Steve, comes from that time when, when my mum came back from hospital after a heart attack. She'd send me out to play. And instead of going out to play, I'd climb in the coal bunker behind the house and I'd watch her through the kitchen window because I thought, well, God tried to take her when I was asleep and he's not going to get her. I'm watching over her. And it was just that, it's just that boy's journey. Um, and it was, you know, we had all sorts of stuff happen as a kid that, that my mother's health, the troubles, the troubles, the Catholic church and, and, and football just, basically formed the basis of that book um and my mum's ill health and the troubles feature very heavily in the early part of it and the other bits when i think of the book there's an awful lot in that book i think for newcastle united fans i'm sure there is a lot, a lot in that book because there's 18 years of newcastle united in there but the bits that i felt really passionately about were the bits about my mum and the troubles in the very early stages of my life because they're such a they're, they just shape you yeah, they do, and I mean that book went on to win so many awards. Oh. Were you amazed? At, were you were you amazed at how well that book did? Amazed. First of all, I was amazed. I sent it off to five agents, and I'm still waiting for a reply from four of them. So, so this, so I thought it was going to be the same thing happen. You know, that fifth agent hadn't replied that bad. Manuscript maybe sitting down the side of my my chair, and never never seen the light of day. But but an agent came back to me within an hour, and about a week later, I had signed a contract with him, and he was promised me to get me a deal with like Bloomsbury or. Penguin or a hotter or one of the big ones. He said, "This is really something," and I kind of took it as the pinch with a pinch of salt. And then he got hotter. They were one of the world's great publishers to publish it. And then very quickly, in the first, you know, in the first days, it went right to the top of the, the charts things. And I was looking at it, thinking, "Is this really? Is that what that is?" And it became a bestseller so quickly that actually the awards thing was an amazing thing because someone would just phone me up and say, "Oh, do you know your your book's just been named as the Sunday Times Sports Book of the Year?" And like, "Oh, right, okay." And then someone say, "Oh, it's, it's the Times Sports Book of the Year," and then it's the it's the Daily Telegraph. And then it won. It just won. I can't describe that. I think when I when I when I eventually popped my claws, I think that book may be the thing. Unless I 
are better at with with awards and maybe managing the team might do something. But I, I think that's the thing that maybe maybe my family might be most proud of. I think because it's a very honest book about about lots of lots of success in there, but an awful lot of failure and an awful lot of silly things done by one person who should be intelligent, but he seems to keep making the wrong the wrong moves. But um, but actually at least tries to get back up again and goes again. And I think that's important. Your health, um, you know, had taken a turn for the worst with a heart attack. But in 2016, you were diagnosed with with prostate cancer, mate. Mm. I mean, what, what was that like to go through? I mean, for, well, you know, for anybody, it's it, it's you know, yeah, the C word is is, is awful. Yeah, the madness of the whole situation is, I just finished the manuscript of the boy in the shed, and with a very, I think, quite a, some people said quite a quite a, I think a, a, an attitude of looking forward to putting this thing behind me, and and I'd actually finished the manuscript. But that was in 2016 when I finished the manuscript. About a week and a half, two weeks later, the Boy in the Shed wasn't published for two years after that, in 2018. So just after the manuscript of the Boy in the Shed is published, I'm in the neurologist's office thinking I've got rid of this whole journey here. And, he, and I barely sat down and he said, oh, Mr. Ferris, I think you have a significant prostate cancer. And, you know, people talk about that moment all the time. And I read about it in The Magic in the Tin. My wife was in the room and he was sitting between me and my wife. And I just wanted to push the surgeon out of the way just to get to her because I felt like I just wanted to be I just felt like the, the bottom had dropped out of my world I mean it really did and, and then you and then your first fear is okay where is this cancer is it in my prostate or is it anywhere else Am I, and, and then you're then you're on this journey of MRI scans and bone scans and I read about it in the magic in the tin I'm having a bone scan on the 23rd of December in 2016 to see if cancer is spreading in my bones and you're not getting the, you're not getting the answer that day. What what's happening? So Christmas that year, you know, I, I write very graphically about Christmas that year. It's just I can't even remember it because you're just terrified of what's happening. And then I, you know, I, they, I was very lucky. They said it was in your prostate, in the prostate. So I went for the nuclear option of having my prostate removed, which is a hugely um, impactful thing to do as a, as a middle aged man because it transforms everything about you as a man. So I don't function, I don't function as a man in any way, shape or form anymore. And that's hard to live with. I'm very blessed that I've got a wife who's been with me for a long time and we cope with it. But, but you know, that happened. And I'm not spoiling the book for people, but, you know, you're, you're back in hospital with some sepsis and you're not very well. And, and then I got, and then I managed to get the publishing deal for the magic in the tin, you know, sorry, for the boy in the shed, excuse me. Um, the pro just, just, just when you're really at your lowest ebb, you get, you get the publishing deal and it gives you something to focus on. So the magic in the tin story is essentially story of that journey with prostate cancer which has been bleak with the success of them of of the boy in the shed in the background and then the birth and growth of my granddaughter which has been an amazing incredible thing to happen in my life at the time when i needed it most to have this beautiful child come into your life when you're really low and then to see her life and what she thinks of life and try and see it through her eyes so it's been a real joy for me and, and actually because the prostate cancer journey i have to tell you has been 10 times more significant in my life than the heart attack was because the heart attack i had it I've, I've been exercising this morning. I get on with my life. I know I have heart disease, but that's fine. Prostate cancer is with me every day. When, when, when you're sitting with a doctor and he says, this surgery will leave you impotent. This surgery will leave you incontinent. This surgery will leave you with penile shrinkage. This, you'll never produce, you know, you'll you know, you, you know, you, you, not have an erection again, possibly. Um, that's, that's it. I think I, not, there are lots of men who, don't get the opportunity to live, so I have to be careful what I say here. But that's a tough gig to live with for me personally. Now I'm blessed that it's not; it isn't outside my. It was there was a little bit outside, but it's been dealt with the radiotherapy. But I'm but I but I've had a good I've got a good prognosis, which is the most important thing. And I've got my life and I've got my family. But actually, 
you know, it's it is it is tough to be to be when you've lost when you've lost everything that made you part of what what made you a man. Yeah, I can, um, I, you know, I can understand that, mate. And it's 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 something which I think we need to push the message out. You know that you know you've got to talk about these things. Guys have got to talk. We we're often accused of being people who keep things in. Um, yeah. And if you if you feel any change in your health, go and get it checked out, Paul. I think that's the one yeah, message absolutely. we can give on this give on this show. No, absolutely. And you have to do that. Even 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 for me, with all the side effects that I have, I'm still now four years clear of my cancer because it was at an earlier stage. So I still I can still talk about the misery of the side effects, but I'm still here to talk about it and I've still got my family and I'll still see my granddaughter grow. If you leave it too late, those things are gone. Yeah, it's an important message. Uh, I will stick a link down there to the prostate cancer charity uh, below as well. Let's get on to the uh, the, the book, uh, which is going to be another bestseller, is going to win more awards and is uh, is hopefully on your shopping list. People watching at home uh, for, for Christmas for any Newcastle United fan. And it is the magic in the tin. We've already uh, spoken a little bit about it. I'll just give you a couple of the uh, the reviews already from those people who, um, you know, read these books in advance. Alan Shearer says, all men should read this book, important and brilliantly written. Jeff Stelling uh, from Sky says, a triumph, a worthy follow-up to Boy in the Shed. Uh, Mick Harford, another man that Joe Allen described as hard as goat's knees. A difficult and important story, beautifully told. Uh, the Athletic, Genius, a difficult, deeply personal story, beautifully told. Paul Ferris is a rare and important author who can write about the darkest of subjects with a warmth and life-affirming honesty few others can match. And uh, we've even got Kevin Deere, who's a writer and a comedian, saying Paul Ferris manages to be brutally honest and very funny about something dark and terrifying. He's also generous, warm and philosophical. Uh, also some great reviews from uh, the likes of the Daily Mail, a book as brave as it is honest, and ITV News, who said a fantastic read, educational and thought-provoking. And Francis Penali, who's been on his own journey, uh, he's an award-winning charity fundraiser, says it's a powerful, courageous and brave book. It's had some great reviews already, Paul. Um, you must be you know, proud of, of those people who've come forward and media organisations who've come forward I want people to buy it, so I don't want you to go too much into what's in the book. But why should people buy this one? What what's different of this to, to the first book? I think it's more. I think it's it's more personal in the first book. And lots of people who read the first book would say to me, "Thank you very much for your honesty in the first book, because you're very personal about things." It's like it's like the boy in the shed ramped up um, in terms of in terms of being as honest and as frank as I could be about what it's like to be a middle aged man dealing with what I've just said those things that are embarrassing for men to talk about, those things that men never talk about. And I, and, and, and I was writing, I was writing some of the darker bits of it. And I, and I hope when you've, you've read it, Steve, I hope you've agreed some of the darker bits of it, I think I've delivered with some humor to try and yeah. lighten some of the darkest bits in that book. You should be, you should find yourself, I hope, and I've done it properly. You should find yourself laughing and thinking, should I be laughing at this? Cause this is really quite serious stuff. And, and I want, and, and, and my, my middle son, um, is maybe our, our, maybe the toughest audience in the, and and I was writing it one day and I'm writing about about I'm not saying too much about it I'm writing about a conversation I had about the use of a penis pump sorry to be so blunt and, and and I'm writing about what that you know that experience and and I said to him can I just read this chapter to you and just tell me if you're going to be embarrassed if I if I put this in the public domain and and I read I read him something really really personal and he just said that that's that's your journey and that's your journey and that's your journey you need to tell it and you need to tell you need to tell people what it is because how do people know 
And how do people can speak honestly about these things? How, 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 how do we know? I've been being honest. I wrote it because mentally I've been on a journey with prostate cancer that I'm still going through. I'm, I'm, I'm not the same person as I was before the prostate cancer. I'm not, I'm not just, I don't smile just as often as I used to. And I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. And that's another honest thing we have to talk about. That life feels different to me. And I wanted to write away, I wanted to write away some of the pain. Um, and I think I did that, but also I wanted to show with the success of the, of, of the boy in the shed, but actually more importantly, the birth of my granddaughter. If you haven't had a grandchild, I'm sure it, it, people, people who have grandchildren know this point. I sometimes quote the American bumper sticker when I say, if I'd known grandchildren were this good, I'd have them first. Because she, she just came into my life at the time when I was really, really down. And it's very hard to be down when you're playing in a park with a, with a three-year-old or a four-year-old or you're sitting, or, or, you're, or, you know, or, you're, or you're, the magic in the tin refers to her and I won't give, that, I won't give anything away about that, but it's actually just a, a metaphor for being willing to embrace life when you've been, when you've been kicked a bit often. Um, and I just, I loved writing, Steve. And I, I didn't know, I didn't know I did. I honestly didn't know. I didn't know I had a skill with that. It takes a lot for me. It takes people that you read the reviews. You could read me a hundred reviews that say it's wonderful. If one person said it's awful, I'll be like, oh, I must be awful then. <laughs> just, I've always been that and I've got to, got to fight against that. But um, I love I love writing. I find writing a real joy. But just the process, and and I like I like the words, and I like trying to the things I've enjoyed most about the reviews on those books have been people saying they really enjoyed the quality of the writing. That sounds ridiculous, but I, I've just just the actual ability to write has been something that I've never thought I had. It's fantastic. It's a great journey, Paul. Um, and thank you so much for sharing the journey with us today. Paul Ferris, The Magic and the Tin, uh, needs to be on your Christmas list, folks. Uh, the link is below with all the other books uh, uh, for you to go and buy an order online. Just a quick one, uh, Paul, on Newcastle United now. You mentioned it earlier. You hope that the, the journey that we went on, you went on in the 1990s is, is what we're about to, to go on again. It, it's it's great, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, you live in the area. Just the feel-good factors back with Newcastle United, with the new owners in, the being here a year now, yeah. uh, Newcastle win, winning more games than they lose now, and, and, and just, you know, the hope is back and the chance to potentially win that elusive trophy, Paul. Well, you mentioned hope, and that's all. I mean, hope... You know, they have, Newcastle United fans are, are the most maligned fans in the country. And people have this idea that we all think we're going to, we deserve to be because we've got big crowds, we deserve to win everything. That's not what's been going on for the previous in the previous ownership was a real lack of ambition. And and you and you're walking to watch your football team, and you know that they're not there to compete. That's not that's not what fans go to watch football for. They go to watch it for the hope. And I think and the hope is that's what I feel. And I feel the current coach. And when I watch what they're doing. I feel like they're on the right. They're on the right path. It feels like they're on the right path. And football can change quickly. Three defeats in a row, and there'll be doom and gloom everywhere. I get it, but I won't be doom and gloom because I, I think they're definitely on the right path and they're doing it the right way. And you know, to watch some of the some of the some of the atmospheres again that you think of have gone. And you mentioned before, Steve, when I made my debut for Newcastle, it was eleven at home. My home debut was eleven thousand people in the stadium in the second division in an old rickety stadium. Football can football can be, you know, they can go really low. So we're now we're now in a place I think where where you mentioned it again. I think it's hope, and I and I love the hope. Yeah, me too, mate. Paul Ferris, uh, thanks so much for coming on, mate. Great to have you on here. Great story, and I'm sure the book will be a big success. Thanks very much, mate. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Uh -huh.